a great quote from one of the Republicans I talked to who said, basically, anyone who tries to tell you that they know what could have made the difference is a carnival barker. They're blowing smoke. It's 80,000 votes across three states, and the wind blowing a different way one day could have made a difference to which of those people turned out. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Daniel Lorison, Associate Professor of Sociology at Swarthmore College. Daniel has a book out called Producing Politics, inside the exclusive campaign world where the privileged few shape politics for all of us. I asked Daniel about his life and career path and how he came to study campaign staff and consultants. Daniel has an interesting story and an interesting book. You should listen. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Daniel. Uh, Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Daniel Lorison. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Swarthmore College and the associate editor of the British Journal of Sociology as well. I have been at Swarthmore for six years. I did a postdoc at the London School of Economics before that, and I got my PhD in sociology at UC Berkeley. I broadly teach and and do research on issues related to class, inequality, political participation. And of course, this book is about campaign professionals. Yep. Uh, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in mostly in Seattle. And did you come from a political family? I I did. My mom was actually a a communist and an organizer um, in Boston when I was little and then in Seattle. Uh, So I grew up sort of thinking of, well, thinking that the revolution was inevitable um, and going to protests and being part of all kinds of of political meetings and, and gatherings and so on. Where do you place your own politics with that background? There were two problems with the political philosophy that I sort of grew up in. One is the the belief that a lot of people get from Marxism that there's an inevitability of social change, of revolution. And I think that's not how the world works. Very few things are inevitable or guaranteed or even, you know, predictable a few years in advance. Some things are, but many things are not. And then I think the the Okay, maybe there's three problems. <laughs> the second one is the communist countries of the era were, you know, deeply problematic to say the least. I think my mom and people around her were sort of rightly, you know, believed that a lot of what we were hearing was US propaganda rather than actual truth, but the USSR did in fact do awful things to lots of people, etc. So that um, you know, sort of sullies the the attempts at communism that were existing at that time. The third thing is, I think that this gets into a really deep political philosophical question that I, you know, think about and don't have a complete answer to, but I'm not convinced that the way you make change that you want to see is actually through trying to radically uproot entire systems. I think when you do that, you cause a lot of pain and suffering. And if you don't have an awful lot of the people involved on board who you're trying to help, then the chance that you're actually going to achieve what you're aiming for is pretty low. So I'm not sort of convinced by revolutionary politics of that sort, even though I'm very sympathetic to the, you know, to the 
you know, the thing that I think my mom and the people around her were right about and that the sort of radicals right now are right about is that, you know, lots of our problems around, you know, equality, poverty, et cetera, do go deep into the roots of the system that we've got. And so I'm very sympathetic to the impulse to try to uproot that, right? The sort of radical impulse. I'm less convinced that the, uh, that it's possible to do that through a total system restructuring. That's an interesting mix of radicalism and conservatism, I think, and probably sensible. Tell me about your undergraduate work. I went to actually Swarthmore College also as an undergrad. Um, I did not think I would end up teaching there when I was an undergrad at all. I, um, I actually... Uh, I think I can say this without hurting anybody's feelings since it turned out to be true of me. But when I was an undergrad, I thought the professors who taught there, like something was really wrong with them. It was sort of like going back and living in your mom's basement. If they'd gone there for undergrad, why would you come back? Um, but I was, you know, I was out for, uh, I'm not going to do the arithmetic in my head correctly, but I was out for, you know, 17 years or something before I came back and taught there. It's actually a great place to be a professor. The students are great. It was one of my top three choices, I remember, and uh, also visited it for the graduation of a friend's sister, and just seems like a lovely, elite place to get an education. Yeah, actually a, a mix of radical and conservative <laughs> in a similar way, I think. Do you know uh, Rick Vallely? Mm-hmm, a bit, yeah. He was a visiting professor when I was a grad student in political science at MIT and uh, seemed like a good guy. And does interesting work. Somebody I probably should hunt down for the podcast too. You mentioned the the schools and the degrees that follow, but actually before that, you did work in the campaign world a little bit. So can you talk a little bit about that experience because that kind of plays into the topic of the book and so on? Sure. Yeah, I actually worked the, on a campaign um, as part of or while I was in grad school. So um, this story is in the beginning of the book, but. You know, I got to grad school in the fall of 2004 and thought that it was really important whether Bush won or whether Kerry won um, and tried to volunteer for the Kerry campaign and went down to this sort of uh, field office in this parking lot on the edge of Berkeley and said, I, you know, I'm here and I had just spent five years working in a nonprofit. And so I had fundraising experience and I had event management experience and I had volunteer management experience and I, you know, I knew how to do really a lot of things that I thought would be very relevant and helpful to a campaign organization. And of course, as all of us who now have an understanding of campaigns know, what happened was I showed up and I said, I can do all these things. And they said, great, here's a list, make some phone calls, which I did. But I decided I wanted to get more involved, um, both because I thought I had something to offer, but also and because I thought the outcome was so important, but also because I wanted to understand sort of how campaigns work. And so I made a few other attempts and, and came up against the same, if you're not a full-time insider, you're not involved sort of barrier. And then in the late summer of 2008, someone I actually knew from grad school was the Bay Area regional manager for the Obama campaign. And she brought me on to work with her as a regional field organizer, I think was the title. And so I did that for about uh, four months in the late summer through the election of uh, 2008. Yeah. Which gives you some sense of how some part of one big campaign works. Yes. For sure. Yes. Tell me about why you decide to write in grad school. It's your, it's your dissertation, right? Yeah. The, my dissertation and then an, a bunch of follow-up research since then. So it's sort of a decade plus of, of research on and off that's in this book. One of the arguments of the book and one of the reasons I think it's important and add something that's not out there in a lot of studies of campaigns and elections is that, you know, it's super important, obviously, who wins elections. And that's one of the key things that campaigns may contribute to, although I think the, you know, the extent that they do that is a, is a question. But the other thing about that that campaigns do is they are a means by which regular people are contacted by, connected to uh, campaigned at by the political establishment, by the machinery of politics. And that's something that I think is important, both in terms of the, the messages that people are hearing, um, but also because, you know, 
the messages that people are hearing and also who's getting contact and who and who's not getting contacted, who the messages are aimed at. And I think also, you know, one thing that politics is about is trying to help people make some connection between the problems that they might identify in their own lives, the concerns that they have, and, you know, an argument about either here is a political party or a politician or a policy that will solve those problems. Here is a way to think about the source of those problems. Here's a problem you maybe even didn't know you had, but we're going to convince you is a problem, right? And where a lot of uh, social scientists would like for the role of sociology or the role of sort of other social sciences to be helping people make sense of their daily lives and how that fits into larger social structures, where that's actually happening, I think, is in large part, not only, but in large part through campaigns. And I think that means we need to understand who's doing that work, how they're making those decisions, how they see the, the work that they're doing. It's a tricky communication problem when you have essentially one person, a candidate through their organization talking to in the largest battle, 300 million people. So it's a little hard to have it be bi-directional and maybe all that one would want, but there are certainly campaigns at every level, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that one of the, I think, challenges for democracy in the U.S. overall is just the scale. A House member represents far more people here than a member of parliament does in the UK or than most national government's representatives do most other places. So the scale makes things really tricky. And there's lots of other sort of features of the way that US politics is organized that make things, uh, you know, there are sort of structural problems that make things challenging in terms of what I would consider meaningful, inclusive democracy. One of the things I'm trying to do with the book is say, even if we can't solve some of those problems, there could be other ways that campaigns could work that might make more connections, more meaningful connections. How was it as a dissertation topic? Was it a good choice? That's a good question. Um, I think the bad choice that I made was I have this campaign careers database with uh, thousands of people in it. And that's been an enormous amount of work. And if Berkeley was a place where dissertation advisors got more directly involved with what their students were doing, somebody might have said, you know, you could just do the interviews for the dissertation. Um, and I might have been finished a little earlier. So that's one way that it wasn't a you know, great strategic choice. The other thing that might not have been a great strategic choice is the book is really, you know, it comes from a fairly sociological perspective in the sense that um, how I think about what people are like, what kinds of decisions they make, how they go about their lives, that it's important to understand who's doing the work and how they're doing it. But it's in a, on a topic that falls squarely within political science. And so that makes it hard for both disciplines to fully appreciate in some ways. Political scientists, you're not a political scientist, you know, do you get to talk about this? And sociologists, many of them are not that interested in electoral politics in the US. They've sort of ceded that to political science. And so strategically doing something that is, you know, right at the intersection of two fields or uh, not really fully in either, it makes things a little bit challenging for either discipline to make sense of. Tell me about your career subsequent to turning in the dissertation, getting it approved and taking up this topic again. What happened along that way? Yeah. So I don't know if academia is interesting to your listeners. It is to me. All right. <laughs> I went on the job market the first time uh, in the fall of 2012 and I basically got zero hits. Um, I didn't have, you know, I had a publication that had gotten an R&R at a very good journal, but it hadn't gotten accepted ultimately. Um, I didn't have other good publications, I but I was so ready to be done with grad school. Uh, so I went on the job market. Um, I got basically nothing uh, in January. Um, I, I think this is similar in political science and sociology. Most of our jobs are listed in the fall. Uh, if you haven't heard anything by December, you're probably not getting a tenure track job. It's less true now than it was then. Anyway, there was a postdoc advertised, I think, in January of the following year of 2013. 
And it looked like it was written for me in terms of sort of the things they wanted. They wanted somebody who could do social network analysis, and I taught myself a little bit of that. They wanted somebody who could do multiple correspondence analysis, and I taught myself that fairly well um, and taken some classes. They wanted somebody who was familiar with Pierre Bourdieu and his approaches to class and inequality. And I'd taken bunches of classes and really worked with him, I mean, not with Bourdieu directly, but with his ideas. Um, I don't remember the other listings, but it was, you know, I was like, this is me, I could do this. When I applied and I ended up getting the job. And a big part of the postdoc was working with this uh, Great British Class Survey, which was this online survey. So lots of social scientists were quite mad at both the survey and the researchers who'd written an initial article about it um, because it wasn't a representative survey and because it took an approach to class that other people in the UK really didn't like. So I came onto this research team in uh, the summer of 2013 amid a sort of huge press uh, fight, basically, between the research team I was joining and some other sociologists about this work. Um, and ended up, you know, the the job was to work on this work with this data set. So I wrote a couple of articles on my own, and then uh, was across the hall from Sam Friedman, who became a good friend and co-author, who had an article where he'd done a bunch of analyses. And one thing that was in that article was this evidence that there was a pay gap between people from working class origins and people from privileged origins who were working in exclusive jobs and top jobs in the UK. And I thought that he was almost going to sort of drop that paper because he'd gotten such bad reviews on it. Um, and his original co-author had dropped off. And he asked me if maybe I wanted to help him figure out if there was something salvageable here. And we ended up writing this paper that ended up becoming a series of papers and a book and all this stuff all centered on this class origin pay gap that we saw in that initial table. I assume that pay gap is sort of after you rule out other factors, right? Or, yeah. So we talk yeah. about it both. The overall gap is about uh, privileged origin people in these top jobs are making about 16% more than working class origin people overall. I think that the overall gap is worth talking about before you rule out other factors because it describes, you know, the overall difference of what people are earning, even given that they've gotten to these top jobs. But then we, when we control for everything we can in the data set that we've got, uh, years of experience, education, type of education, how well they did in their undergraduate degrees, what type of job they're in exactly, all of that, and also, of course, gender, race and ethnicity, age, we still see about an 8% gap. So, you know, still a substantial amount of uh, pounds per year. And so by doing that, you're kind of building yourself better credentials for coming back into academia, right? So what, what happens next? My partner likes to say a big chunk of my career is sort of um, looks a little bit more like luck and is a little bit less strategic on my part than she might have wished that it would have been. I was not uh, exactly doing all of that on the like, let me try to show I'm a full-on sociologist who can do things that are just uh, just about class inequality and sort of right in the heart of what sociology is interested in. But that's what I did. And so, yeah, when I went on the job market again, towards the end of that postdoc, I had a couple of good options, um, and including staying on at LSE as a researcher, but decided to come back to the U.S. because, I mean, both because it's, you know, it's, it's an odd experience being in a country that you speak the language, you understand most of what's going on, but the politics are just not, um, not my politics. So where did you come back to? Um, so I came right back to Swarthmore College. Yeah. Um, and we've been living in Philadelphia since then. How has that been for you? Oh, it's pretty great. As a yeah, Swarthmore is a great place to teach. The class sizes are small. The students are super. I mean, one of the things that I think is really uh, probably not unique, but unusual is that, you know, something about both the selection of students into the campus and the campus culture, people are there because they want to learn things. They want to talk about ideas. They want to understand the social world or the physical world or the humanities, whatever classes they're in. For me, it's the social world. And so I get to have conversations with students that are 
enjoyable and often sort of edifying and satisfying for me. I mean, I think it's also partly thinking about, you know, how other campuses work and students other places. Part of it is also that Swarthmore provides enough support for students that they mostly don't have to be working a full-time job somewhere else or et cetera. So they're able just to focus on being in school. And that's a really, you know, incredibly lovely place to be as a professor. Can you put your finger on any substantial difference between the students when you were there as a student yourself and as a professor? There's definitely a higher proportion now. It's been increasing every year since I've been there of students who are first generation in their families to go to college and or from low income, poor working class backgrounds. My mom was a secretary. She had a income that was probably a little under the median household income, but we weren't struggling, but we, you know, going out to Wendy's was our big treat. And I don't think I realized my first few years there, how far away from the median income at Swarthmore my family was, possibly until my senior year when two of my roommates had their own cars. And it was sort of this, like, it was a shock to me that any 21-year-old would have their own nearly brand new or brand new car that their family had bought them. So I think that's shifted some, but it's also, and you know, I, I know that partly from you know looking at the numbers rather than from experience. I think a feature of being a professor is it's such a different experience for being a student that it's hard for me to say much about what the campus culture is like or who the students are as a whole in the way that I might have been able to when I was a student and going to the you know dining hall on a regular basis and participating in more of the campus-wide things. Why did you decide to go back to? the producing politics topic. Yeah, so you know, when I was in when I was in London and I was working on the class ceiling and working on those papers, I had been trying to get an article published on this work. I submitted it a couple places and didn't didn't get a hit, but I didn't feel that uh, inspired about it at the time. Obama was still president. I sort of thought that the you know the things that I really cared about in terms of how campaigns could be different, maybe they were moving in those directions. I think also just the sort of feeling of pressure around the sort of the arguments of the book was was generally less. I got back to the US in the summer of 2016 and as we all know Trump beat Clinton that fall and that was sort of a a reminder to me that all of this really 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 matters. That's something I forgot exactly, but I felt a little bit more I think as as many people on the broad left half of the political spectrum did that that things were maybe okay. And so when Trump was elected, I sort of had this moment of what is something that I know as a scholar that I can work on that is uh, that can contribute to figuring out how to have a politics in the U.S. that makes that less likely in the future. Thinking about the work that I'd done on my dissertation made me realize, you know, I, I've got something to say that I want to say. I'm curious about your reaction to sort of the rise of Trump. You know, there was a lot of people who didn't take him seriously for a while and then were shocked. We both experienced the sort of, you know, women's march resistance and build up through 2018 and 2020 to ousting him, at least temporarily. What was your personal reaction to that beyond trying to take your scholarship in that direction? I won't claim to have, you know, known for sure he was going to win, but I was far less optimistic that Clinton was going to be the victor than I think a lot of people around me were in the lead up to to the election. Part of what what Trump was able to do was to connect to some people who had been somewhat disconnected from politics and to make them more excited that someone who they perceived as, you know, caring about people like them was was on on offer. I think there's another story of what happened, which is like, there's always been a really substantial strain of regressive white supremacy, misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, in US politics. And it's not surprising that someone can activate that and use that sort of racism and racial resentment and so on to to win, an, win a primary and win an election. So that's sort of the, the, the political analysis piece, I guess, although there's lots of there's been lots of great analysis since then. My personal reaction was was just 
fear and devastation, right? That um, this was somebody who'd made promises to do real harm to all kinds of communities. I mean, for me personally, I'm a transgender man. He was saying that he was going to make it impossible for people to get passports in their correct gender, which, you know, was going to limit people's ability to, to travel. There was just a lot of fear and worry about what that would look like, both for our family personally, but also for, you know, especially poor and working class and black and brown people around the U.S. Yeah. And I think it it became clear over time to many people's disbelief that he was going to govern maybe worse than the fears during the campaign, you know, that he, that he was going to model himself in this sort of proto-authoritarian wannabe sort of way. And with so much misinformation, lying, corruption, and, and everything else that followed. It's a hard time. Yeah. People talk about the sort of, you know, lots of what he's, he was saying is not that different. Like Orrin Hatch died recently. And, you know, a, bun- a bunch of people I follow on Twitter were saying, like, we're mourning this gentlemanly person who was polite and, you know, he was polite out loud, but his policies were awful. And on the one hand, I think that's true. And on the other hand, I think there's there is something to be said for norms of, you know, not being egregiously racist, sexist, et cetera, in public, even when the policies aren't that different, in part because being egregiously awful out loud opens up the doors to policies that are even more harmful Um, and to, you know, to put things outside of politics where, I mean, there's all this stuff happening right now where the Republicans are going after LGBTQ people in many states, and that opens the door for individual violence and all sorts of other things that even if the same people might have proposed similar policies when they're, and this gets back to sort of, you know, what campaigns say and do, what politicians say and do matters even beyond the policies, right? If the things you're saying out loud are, you know, we've gone back to queer people are groomers, they're pedophiles, they're, we are, you know, a danger, a threat to children, then that makes some people feel empowered to beat up someone they perceive as trans on the bus or whatever it is. And so, you know, it's not that I'd make the argument that Orrin Hatch was a force for good in the world, but I'd if you give me a choice between a, a Trump and an Orrin Hatch, a person who will say the the most inflammatory and false things out loud on a regular basis and a person who just says them in private, I'd rather people just say them in private. And and maybe even the difference between Orrin Hatch and Mike Lee. Orrin Hatch might, may well not have collaborated on January 6th, for example. Yeah. Right. I think there's a real... Um, you know, I think there's a real value in some of our political norms that keep things um, happening through official democratic channels rather than through violence and and insurrection and so on. So your book is, to some degree, a kind of a critique of the campaign class, the people who work for the candidates whether they're consultants or staff. There's a bit of a tension in it between sort of the chapter about the limited measurability of campaign effects and the claim that these people matter. I kind of believe both. I, I, I'm with you there. I took enough political science to, to understand the kind of predictability that, that elections have as well as the fact that they're often not, but there's a lot of patterns that are very, very clear and a lot of fundamental variables. Can you sort of describe what's going on? Why do you talk about that first and then go into the characteristics of, of this campaign class of people? Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll say something to your first point, which is, you know, it is a critique of the campaign class, but I also tried to, in, in some ways, but I also tried to be clear that I I don't think that what's going on is that people are sort of purely mercenaries or purely instrumental. You know, most people I talk to really want their side to win 
for reasons that are, you know, deeply connected to their political philosophy and not just to their career prospects, not just to their power, access to power. The other tension that you sort of, or that I want to pull out is that on the one hand, I think that they could do different things that would be better for our democracy. And I think that there are real problems with the way the campaign world is structured. But I also, you know, I genuinely liked everyone I talked to, even across pretty big political differences. I could see that they, you know, really believe in what they're doing and care about the outcomes that they think they're working towards. I mean, I feel like it's true for human professions. Like if you look at doctors, most of them are really trying to help you with your health, but they're also affected by profit motive and some of them do too many surgeries or prescribe too many drugs or or follow conventional wisdom this is it's another human arena yeah Yeah. um and that's i mean one of the things the book does is sort of take that insight which is the answer to your question two ways you know um one i tell the story of the book and i you know, one of the political science people that I talked to about this project as I was getting it started, the outside member on my committee, basically said, why should we care who they are or what they do? They're just going to do what it takes to win. And I hope that person doesn't feel attacked when I repeat that, because I think that's what a lot of people, probably more in political science and sociology, but also in the campaign world, believe about how this works. They're just doing the rational thing that it takes to win. Um of course they want to win. So they're going to figure out what's the best research, what's the best practices to make the outcome happen, you know, to make it as likely as possible that the outcome they want happens. So we don't need to know how they feel about their work, who they are thinking about when they're making decisions, how other people around them react to those decisions. We don't need to know whether they're predominantly white men or whether they're racially and gender diverse in various ways. It doesn't matter. They're just going to do what it takes to win. So I start with the unpredictability of campaigns and the difficulty of knowing what's going to be effective, um, in part to sort of take apart that argument, to show why it matters, who's doing this, how they think about it, how they make those decisions. If you could just hand campaigns over to robots or algorithms and they would do exactly the same thing, then it wouldn't matter who's, who's in them, who's making those decisions. So that's part of why I start with that. I think it's also important just as a, you know, a thing for people who are reading a book that is aimed at a wide audience to understand about campaigns, right? That, that a lot of the reporting we see about, um, you know, Mitt Romney said 47% of Americans don't pay taxes. And so that's why he's going to lose. And then he lost at a high. It was that one moment captured on tape. A lot of the things that people who are sort of in the world of following politics hear about and care about and pay so much attention to, don't seem to make very much difference at all to how the mass of people make their voting decisions. And so I think that's also an important point to make about sort of how campaigns and politics work. The deplorable comment or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My career was in political technology and I had a book that I edited, which I called Margin of Victory, because I was often frustrated when I thought about politics in how little I felt what I did mattered. Do the databases that are used by, across the Democratic Party, which I have had a hand in developing, does that truly affect any campaign in terms of winning or losing? You know, uh, if it's if it's within a vote, maybe you know, or if you put a lot of people volunteers on top of it, yeah, um, people talk about the field margin or whatever uh, point or two, but. It is a dilemma, I think, broadly for the consulting and and campaign class that they have a sense that they matter and they probably do matter, particularly in specific instances, but it's hard to put a finger on exactly how or what does, even though there's political science on specific things. It's hard to truly accurately claim credit for much. Yeah. And that's true both when the margins are big, right? When there's a 
a, a landslide for one party or the other, whether on the state or the national election level. It's hard to say that the campaigns could have done something much different to make a to make a different outcome because um, the electorate was clearly just where they were and that was just you know what was going to happen. And I had a lot of conversations with people right after 2017 or in in 2017 right after Trump had won. Um, and I have a great quote from one of the Republicans I talked to who said basically anyone who tries to tell you that they know what could have made the difference is a carnival barker. They're blowing smoke. It's 80,000 votes across three states and the wind blowing a different way one day could have made a difference to which of those people turned out. I mean, the head of the FBI and what he did two weeks before might have cost a point or two. Yeah. And when it's really close, you know, any given thing could have made the difference. And this is a problem that's not unique to campaigns. It's a problem that's, you know, we live in this incredibly complicated world. We're talking about 300 million people roughly and what they decide to do on a given Tuesday or in the pre-voting beforehand. That's really tricky. And we can say with some, and this is the, I think this is a tension in the research on campaigns. It's a tension in the scholarly research. It's a tension um, among campaign professionals and within individual people themselves as they're sort of talking about their work, um, right? On the other hand, uh, if, you know, you could be pretty sure that if you didn't do anything, you know, if one side didn't campaign, they'd probably lose. So part of why it's hard to say what matters and what doesn't is because, you know, there are these two sides sort of, um, in some sense, canceling each other out. Yeah, yeah. If campaigns, to some extent, often cancel each other out. And if measuring the effect of the work of all these very hardworking people matters only at the margins, why are you so interested in what they do and their makeup? So two things. I think while it's true that most of the messaging and most of the ads and most of the speeches sort of cancel each other out, I do think there's pretty good evidence that field, right, actually talking to real people and asking them to vote is one of the few reliable things that sh- that's been shown to make a difference in um, the percentage of people that turn out. And that's a relatively small portion of the budget of most campaigns, right? I think also when people feel connected to part of a larger whole, when they feel like, you know, politics is including them in some ways, they're much more likely to turn out regularly to vote, et cetera. So I think there are places where parties, and I particularly like the Democrats over the Republicans, could do more to get more people involved, to bring them in more and that could make a, a difference overall in how many elections turn out. So that's sort of the first thing. But the second thing is what I said at the beginning, that I think even if in any given campaign, you know, any given thing that any that a campaign does is unlikely, at least it's unlikely to know in advance whether that's going to make the difference. Um, I think who is making those decisions, how they're making those decisions, how they're connecting with people or not, shapes shapes who feels connected to politics, who thinks that politics is an arena where their voice matters, where they're, um, you know, where they're invited to participate. And I think that matters for the sort of quality of democracy overall. Um, And I think if a lot more, especially poor working class people were, you know, brought in and included, you might have different outcomes. One of the things you do with that database of professionals, essentially, is note that political class is not representative of the voters. Uh, I'm not sure why would necessarily expect it fully to be. It's going to be better educated, seems like any profession tends to be, um, but also on racial and gender grounds and others. Why does that matter? Yes, in our society, generally speaking, high-powered, high-paid, high-influence, it's, you know, high respect, all of the sort of better jobs overall are tend to be populated by people with more privilege overall. So it's not surprising. I don't think that makes it unproblematic, right? There's an argument to be made that we want people who are in positions of power overall to have gone to college, to have had the, the chance to spend four years learning political science, learning sociology, learning history um, beyond what you get in high school. 
but the way our college system is set up, the chance that somebody's done that who's from a poor working class family is much lower than the chance that somebody's done that who's from a privileged, well-off family. So it filters. But even, I mean, I say this in the, in the book, I think, but even um, just in terms of education, even if we agree we want people to have gone to a college or university to have had that time, and that sort of should be a requirement for getting into campaigns, First of all, a bunch of people I talked with were like, my degree does nothing for me in this job. It's all learning on the job. That's much more true in campaigns than it is in certainly professoring or doctoring or lawyering and any number of other jobs where the the degree does not directly give you pretty much any of the skills um, that are valued among people in campaigns. But then even if we sort of accept that we want people to have a college degree, that we think that's worthwhile... The particular places that people have went are incredibly skewed towards the elite colleges and universities. So something like less than 5% of people with college degrees have gone to uh, the sort of two most selective tiers of colleges by the sort of standard categorization where you've got the IVs and then you've got the elite, highly, highly, highly ex- exclusive colleges below that. But close to 40% of Democrats and uh, about 25% of Republican campaign professionals have gone to these incredibly elite colleges and universities where the median income of people's parents is, is you know, two to three times the median income in the country overall. Um, so I think that speaks to a real exclusivity and disconnect between the experiences, the worldview, et cetera, of the people sort of producing our politics, to use the title of my book, and the, you know, the experiences and worldview of even other people who went to college, let alone everybody else. So I think that matters in terms of how they think about what kinds of messages are going to resonate, who's important to bring in, how do people understand what politics is. I don't remember seeing in the book, I might've missed it, something about the trajectory, because my sense is that there's a tremendous amount of pressure, at least in the Democratic Party, to diversify um, and that there's some success and that some of the inequity that you're putting your finger on is holdover like it is in lots of professions where the older people are whiter and maler. What's your sense of, of the trend? In both parties, I do compare a little bit the composition of the campaign field in 2020 versus uh, 2004 and 2008. And in both parties, you see a somewhat more racially diverse set of people running campaigns, working in campaigns uh, recently than you did 15 or 20 years ago. So I think there is a, a trajectory to being somewhat more representative. And there was an article that came out during the 2020 primaries that showed that, you know, Basically, over half of people in the primary campaigns taken as a whole at some of the top leadership levels were people of color. There has been a move. I think the questions are, how much is that move happening throughout the different parts of the campaign world? Um, So when I look just at Democrats just for 2020, in the people in communications departments or communications and media consultants, that set of people is is still 80% white, which is much, much more white than the um, Democratic Party voters or even sort of the campaign staff as a whole. And that, as I'm sure you know, and your listeners know, that's where a lot of the sort of high level, how are we framing this? How are we, you know, what's our overall message? What's our strategy? And also, where a lot of the money is. So I think that, you know, I'm hopeful, but I'm not confident that the things are all moving towards greater inclusivity. If we were measurably fully inclusive, which I hope we'll get to, what do you think would change? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, nothing automatically changes just because the composition of who's in the room changes. And I think it's also really important to think about race and class together, right? That if you, you're you fully inclusive racially, but all the, um, all the people you're including are people who went to elite colleges and universities, who come from college-educated, relatively well-off families, you're not getting the sort of full inclusivity that you want. But I do think you know, if that were different, both in terms of race and class, you would see more meaningful attempts to include 
communities of color and poor and working class people in campaign outreach, in messaging, etc. More people would engage with politics if they saw themselves reflected in the people doing it. If they had, you know, if, you know, if, if you know, if you personally know someone who's working on a campaign, there's a really high chance you're going to vote in that election. So there's not just the sort of what are the decisions being made, but actually what are the, the sort of organic pre-existing connections to individuals and communities who haven't been included in politics as much. I think some people might think there's an irony that people who are from elite colleges, like on the progressive side, um, who are running campaigns are and who are kind of on the left are in a kind of political bubble that is a distance from average people, but in a direction that maybe they think is actually a positive one for the country. They're ahead on uh, questions of race and gender and class, not behind. And, and so it's kind of ironic that maybe to speak directly to a broader audience, I think there's a difficulty in finding that communication across that divide and so maybe you're helped if you diversify it, but you may be more conservative. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's right. And it is a tricky tension. It reminds me of the sort of tensions of my mom's commie organization when I was a kid. And this is something that I I think a lot of people on the the left of the left really, really struggle with. Right. Like my mom's organization had a, a, a journal series called which the subtitle was a journal of rectification. Right. So the entire content of this, like, and I have the collection, I inherited it from or I keep it in my office. Right. This entire journal series was just dedicated to explaining why other leftist, communist, Marxist, Leninist, et cetera, groups were not quite right in their political programs. That's always the always the way it is. Yes. Yeah. And so there's this belief that if you're you know, if your political ideology is just right, if you could figure that out, then like somehow everything else just naturally will follow. Right. And that's not how the world works. It would be lovely if it was right. If I could just sit by myself and figure out the exact right, you know, set of policies and programs and et cetera, to make there be justice and equity and so on, and then just write it up and then it would happen. Like that would be great, but that's not how things work. People who value education and knowledge and ideas, which is generally more true, especially recently when truth and so on. Uh, generally more true recently on the left uh, than on the right. We want this to be how things work. It's not how things work. How things work is people need communication and connection with other people. Most of how people do stuff is they have a sense of, this is what people around me are doing. This is the right thing to do. This is what people in my community do. If everyone around you is is voting or excited about Obama or excited about Trump, then you're excited about that too. If your pastor says, you know, this is really important, everybody go out and do this, you're going to probably do it. I don't think this is a huge problem in Democratic campaigns right now, but it's certainly a problem in some parts of the world, right? If you're so dedicated to saying it exactly the right way that you can't make whatever it is, right, or having exactly the right analysis, that you can't make connections with regular people who don't already know all the things you know about how to talk about white supremacy or how to talk about trans inclusion or whatever it is, then you're not you're going to lose them. I think that there would be quite widespread acceptance, even among political professionals, that what you put your finger on is correct. I don't see most people that I talk to, and I talk to a lot of people in this space, would disagree with you. There isn't a lot that you propose to sort of remedy this. What do you think ought to be done? Yeah, this is a classic. I tried to do a little bit better than the average academic book on this. It's a classic problem, right? And a lot of the social sciences, we're really good at identifying the problem. We're not always so good at identifying the solution. One thing that I hope this book will do for people in the political world, especially in the democratic political world, is a bunch of people sort of said to me off the record anonymously, I think there's lots about the way we do things that's not right. But if I go against conventional wisdom, if I, you know, if I put my head up and, and propose doing something really different, chances are I'll just be the weird guy and not get the job again. 
one thing I hope this does is just give people who share this overall analysis of what could be better permission to to advocate for it, to stick their head up a little bit and say, you know, there's something else we could do here, especially with the balance, I think, between um, emphasis on ads versus work on, on field and direct organizing of various sorts. The other thing is to support a push for greater inclusivity in terms of, you know, I think that is something people are working on already, but I think having more, you know, thinking about can we get people who don't have a college degree but have been organizers to be part of a campaign and at a serious level, not just as a door knocker, right? I think that's one of the most valuable jobs there is, but it's not one of the most valued jobs there is. That's another thing that I think could be could be different. I think, you know, a lot of the things that I would like to see are not brilliant, radical, rocket science, new ideas. They're things that people have been pushing pushing for in various ways for as long as I've been paying attention to democratic politics, right? More field organizing, more long-term on-the-ground investment in day-to-day community connections, even outside of elections. I mean, this was like Dean's 50-state plan and et cetera, et cetera, but it, do, you know, it doesn't really happen. Big portion of the resource goes into you know, the the fifth and sixth and seventh Biden ad that I saw when I was watching a streaming show in November in Pennsylvania, right? Um, and I'm really sure that the, the fifth, sixth, and seventh ad during my hour-long whatever I was watching in the fall is not making a difference towards anybody's you know, chance of voting the way that Biden wanted them to. I have a lot of gripes with political consulting and and beyond world Perhaps the biggest one in my head right now is the failure, just like there is among Republican politicians, to confront the lying and the radical move to the right. And even among consultants, except for a small number of uh, people going against the grain, Lincoln Project type people, uh, they're there's very little that it seems like the consultants are doing to rein in the crazies. Um, And it feels like a responsibility to me, to the democracy, to the country. What do you think about uh, that particular question? This is partly a selection issue. I didn't talk to Trump campaign people in 2017, partly because they were mostly in the White House and partly because I didn't want to. I'll do a lot of things for my research that don't make me super comfortable, but I it, that was a little bit of bridge too far in in 2017. Um, but the you know all the other Republican folks that I talked to really were, I think, genuinely between concerned and appalled uh, by Trump, by his tactics, by by the fact that he won. And a, a number of them said to me, you know, but if I say something, I don't get another job. But they're still working for the senator from Missouri. and the- I hoped for a good portion of the Trump era, um, and I no longer have that hope, that some number of Republicans, besides just the few who did the Lincoln Project stuff, would sort of realize they all felt the same way, and that if all of the Republican um uh, sort of campaign world decided that this is not okay and they're not willing to be part of this, they could have done an awful lot to tamp it down to stop what was, you know, some of the misinformation, at least some of the lies to support politicians. That I mean, there is evidence that in primaries, often the the person with the most experienced campaign staff and consultants, the most professional set of people wins. And that's a little bit of a, a circular thing, right? The establishment folks tend to get the more professional, more experienced folks. So they tend to be more likely to win already. But, you know, Republican political professionals could refuse to work for people who they are ethically opposed to. And I think some of them are, but not nearly enough of them. Or they've decided that actually, you know, outright racism appeals to them too. I I hope not. There's tons of other things I could ask you about. I don't want to presume too much on your time. I wonder if you could just suggest briefly who among your colleagues are writing things that you think ought to be followed by people in that particular group that you're writing about? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I could think more of um, 
sort of people who did good and relevant work up to a few years ago that I cite in the book rather than the sort of current people. But there's a couple of really good books by Daniel Kreiss. His book, Prototype Politics, I draw on quite a bit, and it makes the case that a lot of the time, you know, A, campaigns don't change what they're doing very much unless they either think they lost when they should have won, right? Parties don't change what they're doing very much unless they either think they lost when they should have won or the other party adopts a new technology. And I think that's a really important point that there's, you know, there's all this research um, largely, and this is another set of people whose work I like quite a bit is Kalla and Bruckman. And now I can't remember which of them is Josh and which of them is David. Josh Kalla, yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they've shown in all these experiments how much, um, you know, deep canvassing really, which just basically means having real conversations with people, right? How much that makes a difference, how much turnout uh, field can make a difference to turnout. Uh, there's another great book by um, Lisa Garcia-Badola and Mitchelson is the last name of the other person called Mobilizing Inclusion, which is field experiments and get out the vote, you know, and they show that uh, having someone, you know, this point that I've made a bunch of times is comes in large part from their research. If someone who is similar to the person at the door does the outreach to try to get people out to vote, the chance that they can, you know, even people who've never voted but are registered, one of their experiments had an increase in turnout of about 10 percentage points, um, which is huge in this sort of work. So those are um, those are some of the folks doing work that I think is really important and relevant. What's next for you? I have a next project. So this... Um, this book really in some ways came out of my interest in the question of who participates in politics and the class gap in participation. Poor and working class people vote at much lower rates than better off people, although not the same across race. So low income black people are much more likely to vote than low income white people. Um, you know, all else equal. So I have a next project where I have a research lab where we're um, working with both undergraduates and community-based researchers to talk directly to uh, low-income, poor, working-class folks across Pennsylvania about sort of what politics looks like to them. So receiving politics isn't nearly as good of a book title, but that's sort of the idea, right? This this book was about where all of the political stuff that people have to make sense of comes from. The next project is about how do people make sense of that? I've made the argument and I think it's true, but it, I want to get it from talking to people and hear what else I might be missing, that a big part of why some people don't participate is because they have the sense, and it's not wrong, that politics is a game played by rich people that they are not going to make a difference in. And that a lot of people, you know, we've done a bunch of interviews already. A lot of people say things like, you know, I feel like I ought to participate. I ought to vote, but I just don't know enough. And, you know, it's not that upper middle class people actually know more about politics. We're more likely to follow it like a sport. Oh, that's another, right. The, um, Hirsch. Hirsch. Yes. Politics is for power. Um, but like most in most elections to vote, you really just need to know which party generally does stuff that you like better. Um, and that's not complicated for most people on most topics. Right. Um, so the sense that like I ought to know more before I could vote, I don't think is actually isn't objectively true. Right. Or sort of normatively true. You ought to know which party does more of the things you support. After that, you could vote in most elections. When your name was recommended to me as a guest, the last name seemed familiar, and I remembered that I that I believe it was your partner who all, is running a group in Pennsylvania, and I had asked for her to be on the podcast. I didn't get a response. Is she still doing that? And has did that influence your work in this? Yeah. Um, so she has uh, stepped down from that organization. I think the combination of uh, trying to run an organization during a pandemic that was trying to do something that was both electoral politics and really grounded in commitment to equity and, and inclusion and, and anti-racism and all of that was a big job. She ran it until fairly recently. Um, and, you know, that was a that came out of work that uh, she did in um, in the wake of the Trump election. I mean, the the sort of uh, 
too too cute story is I was out canvassing for Clinton in November um, and she was like, ah, that's not necessary. <laughs> and then, um, you know, woke up on whatever the day after the election was, it was like, oh, it was necessary. Not that one person canvassing was going to be the, the difference even in Pennsylvania. So that that came out of sort of her work bringing together a lot of the different groups that sprung up in the wake of the election. And I'm sure she just didn't get back to you because it was, you know, more of a job than one person could do (laughs) and also sleep and eat. I mean, we talked a lot together about sort of that work and this book, that organization, it's still going, does a lot of the things that I think are really important in terms of, you know, having local chapters and figuring out how to sustain organizing and, and connections between regular people and politics all year, even the odd number numbered years that aren't before any major, you know, et cetera. And I think that's really, really, really valuable work. And I hope there's more of that sort of thing on the left. And I hope also, this is actually, this is a small other point about what I hope could happen in part because of the book. Like, you know, the the culture of work in campaigns is unsustainable for anybody who cares about sleep or children or partners or life outside of campaigns for nine to 18 months of every two-year cycle. That's something that, you know, it is hard to get political people to believe could be different, but I think it's got, there's got to be a way. And I think making that shift you know, for as many people as possible, as much as possible, could really make politics work better for a lot of folks. I, there are some people who are considering or working on ways to get better benefits and better organizing to the staff class. And maybe we'll see over time if that happens or not. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? Don't think so. That's good. Anything else you want to say? This has been super, super fun. I really enjoyed uh, talking this over and I hope people will buy the book. It's available for pre-order on all the major sites. Thank you for taking the time. That was Daniel Lorison. Daniel is at swarthmore.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.